Chapter 6 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 6 The Marriage of Angelica and the Madness of Orlando. Now the battle arose in this manner. Charlemagne had been besieged in Paris by the Saracens, and had sent Rinaldo to summon aid from Scotland and England, and after many adventures on the way, Rinaldo had returned with numerous and well-equipped levies. These fresh troops, with special assistance from Silence, as is narrated in another place, Rinaldo had brought unobserved to the rear of the besieging Saracens, and he had attacked them with furious onslaught just as part of their host, under Rodomont, had broken through the outer defences, and Rodomont himself was spreading destruction through the city. The sudden attack of Rinaldo had thrown the pagan armies into confusion, and they had been rolled back far from the city walls. Of all the paladins, Rinaldo wrought the greatest slaughter, and he was driving the broken Saracens before him, when the young king of Zumara, Dardinello, threw himself in his path. This young king had brought with him an ill-equipped and ill-trained band of followers, but what he lacked in experience he made up in courage, and what his soldiers lacked in arms they made up in devotion to their chief. Rinaldo singled out Dardinello as the one enemy who was staying the rout of the Saracens and he pressed through the throng of lesser foes, intent on his destruction. It angered Rinaldo to see that Dardanello bore on his shield the red and white quarterings which Orlando claimed for his own. For Orlando, though his rival in love, was his near kinsman and companion in arms. Speedily the challenge was given and answered, and the knights spurred to meet. The pagan was the first to strike, but the mighty blow glanced from the helmet of Rinaldo and left the young king at the mercy of the Christian. And in a moment Rinaldo had driven his sword through and through the breast of his foe. As he drew forth the steel, cold and pale sank the brave youth to the ground and breathed his last. And with the death of their chief, the Saracens resisted no more, but sought a speedy refuge in the lines fortified by the old king Marsilio against the chances of a disaster. By nightfall, the remnants of the Saracen forces, broken by Rinaldo, had been joined by their comrades, who earlier in the day had made the assault on Paris, but had been driven back by Charlemagne when the rear of the pagan army had been routed. The Christians, rejoicing to leave the city walls by which they had so long been confined, pitched their tents on the field of battle, and, fearless of attack, celebrated their victory with wine and song. But in sorrow and silence the Saracens watched the stars arise, or fell into broken slumbers on the bare earth, and between the two armies of the victors and vanquished lay the greater army of the dead and dying. Now there had followed their young king Dardinello to battle, with his ill-armed troop, two Moorish youths of lowly origin, 
The elder, Cloridan, was a hunter, and through the constant toils of the chase was strong and firm in limb. The younger, Medoro by name, was only on the verge of manhood, and of all the pagan host was the most beautiful in form and most graceful in bearing. His eyes were black as night, and his hair like the gold the painter dreams of for an angel. It chanced that these two were of those to whom the watch of the palisades had been assigned, and as they saw the stars mark the middle of the night, their cheeks were still wet for their dead lord. For in the press of the battle they had been separated from their chief, and had been carried back to the camp by the flood of the retreating Saracens. And as Medoro thought of his beloved master lying dead on the naked plain, exposed to ravening beast and bird, he spoke to his friend, Shall my glorious king be left to be devoured by wolves and ravens? Can I ever forget his goodness? What is my little life in return? Here I can stay no longer. I will seek the Christian camp and search amongst the slain, if haply I may find my dear lord, and at least give him the safety of burial. Stay you here, and if I do not return, tell the reason why I left my watch. And Cloridan marvelled at the great fidelity and courage of so young a heart, but he tried to dissuade him from the hopeless task. But the more he urged, the more the youth was set on giving his king, Dardinello, a fitting grave. And when Cloridan found that all his pleas were vain, he said to Medoro, where you go, I will go. What joy would there be to me in living if I let you go alone to your death? And did not I, as much as you, love and honour our dead king? Come, we will together make the attempt. And they summoned two others to take their watch, and they set out to the tents of the Christians pitched in the middle of the battlefield. Little the Christians wrecked of any night attack, and heavy with wine and weariness, they slept beside the cold ashes of their watchfires. And when Cloridan saw the careless stupor of the enemy, he whispered to his companion, Surely it was decreed by fate that we should take a fitting revenge for the death of our master, and make a sacrifice meet for his grave. Watch you with ears and eyes, whilst I make a path with my sword to our dead lord. Thus whispered Cloridan, and on the word began his murderous slaughter. And so maddened also was Medoro by the loss of his dear king, that he joined him in the butchery. And they chose out for their victims the most notable within reach, silent as angels of death, and to themselves seeming to wield the swords of justice. They made a huge carnage right up to the tents, which guarded the great pavilion of Charlemagne himself. Here they paused for they feared of so many guards, some at least must watch for their emperor, and their first task was to find out the body of their dead king and take it away for honoured burial. They turned away from the tents to the field of battle, where in bloody disorder lay lord and vassal, rich and poor, horse and rider, and round about the dead were blood-stained shields and spears and bows and falchions, and broken fragments of wood and iron were interspersed with the shattered limbs of dead men. So thickly strewn was the plain with the harvest of death, that in the darkness of the night their search would have been hopeless. 
but young Medoro lifted up his pale, anguished face and prayed to the moon to give them aid. And at the prayer of the youth, or as it has been so ordained by the fate we now call chance, forth from a parted cloud shone out the moon, as if to embrace her lover, and her pale light showed them the distant city and the neighbouring tents, and the wide expanse of the plain, and the little hills that encompassed it. But most clearly of all the silver splendour shone upon the heap of slain that marked the prowess of the dead king whom they so eagerly sought. And he lay stripped of his armour, covered with blood and mire, with eyes wide open, staring into their faces. And bitterly wept Medoro and his friend as they drew out with tender hands the dead king from the mangled heap. And they pressed down their sobs and stifled their voices so that none should hear. Not that they feared death for themselves, but they feared lest they should be hindered before they could remove to a place of honour their beloved dead. And with reverence and silent grieving, they shared between them their dear burden, and they hastened to put in safety their treasure. Not long had they left the battlefield when the shadows began to flee before the rising sun, and far off the two companions saw a Christian knight leading a troop of horse. This was the Scottish Prince Zerbino, who all night had been pursuing scattered Saracens, and as soon as the Scottish leader saw the Moors with their burden, he gave orders to his men to cut off their escape into the forest that lay near at hand, and when Cloridan saw that they were discovered, he cried to Medoro to flee as best he could to the forest, and to leave the dead body they were powerless to defend. And on the instant he ran himself to the cover, looking only to the front where lay safety, and thinking Medoro was close behind. But Medoro loved his lord in death as dearly as he had loved him in life, and he could not leave him, but with panting toil he tried alone to bear him to the shelter of the trees. He reached the wood, but missed the path of safety along which Cloridan had fled, and was caught up with his burden in tangled thorn. Far had Cloridan, the fleet hunter, run before he began to miss the following footsteps of his friend, and quickly looking back, he saw that he was alone. Bitterly he reproached himself for his careless haste and not knowing where he had lost his friend, hurried back on the way he had come, and peered on every side into the maze of the woodland. At last he heard the tramp of horse and the cries of foemen in hot chase, and then, as he ran nearer, the voice of Medoro came out from the clamour, and soon he saw that he was surrounded by the troop of horsemen at the border of the wood. The youth still carried his cherished burden, and tried to hide behind some friendly trunk, hopeless but persistent. At length, no longer could he support the heavy weight, and laying the body gently on the ground, he stood on guard, one against a hundred. When Cloridan saw his danger, he most willingly decided to share his fate, but first he thought to take a last revenge. Hidden by the wood, he fitted a sharp arrow to his bow, and with a hunter's skill he sped the feathered shaft into the brain of the nearest Scot and laid him dead on the field. The startled foeman looked hither and thither, and straightway another was pierced through the throat. Zerbino, enraged by this hidden assault, sprang upon Medoro 
and seizing him by the golden locks, raised his sword and cried, You at least shall die! But Medoro, with tearful eyes and broken voice, besought the knight, My own life I do not ask, but by your God be not so cruel as to slay me before I have laid in the earth my honoured king. Give me but time to dig a grave, and then kill me. And Zerbino was much moved, and his heart burned with pity for the beautiful youth and his dead king. But before the chief could utter a word, a churlish trooper, ill-trained in service, lifted his spear and over the arm of his chief, struck the suppliant captive in the breast. Medoro fell as if dead, and Zerbino, deeply angered, turned on the treacherous follower to strike him to the ground, but the caitiff slunk away. And whilst the chief pursued him in his wrath, Cloridan, who had seen Medoro fall, would no longer keep hidden, but casting away his bow, drew his sword, and longing to seek death for himself and to avenge his friend, ran upon the troop, and in the instant, pierced by many blades, fell dead at the side of Medoro. The Scots, when they saw, as they thought, only three dead Saracens, rode hotly after their chief to do his will. Now Medoro was not killed outright, but for a long space he lay bleeding from his wound, and he must have perished but for timely succour. But, as it chanced, when he was faint with oncoming death, there came riding through the forest a young maiden, meanly clad in rustic garb, but in beauty and manner, of queenly presence. This was Angelica, who, hidden whenever she pleased by her ring, was seeking all alone the way back to Cathay, and as she rode, her heart swelled with indignant memories of her lovers, and most of all of Ronaldo. Deeply she grieved that ever she could have fallen so low as to try to gain the love of so hateful a personage, and in her high disdain, she flouted every one of her suitors, even the unconquerable Orlando and the gentle Sacripant. And as she rode through the shades of the forest, she dreamed of the burning suns of India, and as she looked on her peasant dress, she dreamed of the splendour of eastern robes and jewels. Untouched by love and glorying in her freedom, she breathed with joyousness the fresh odour of the pines. Suddenly there came into her sight, almost under the feet of her mare, the two dead men and the dying youth. At the sound, the youth half opened his eyes and looked into the eyes of Angelica, and the princess, who, for all her disdain of love, was easily moved to pity, sprang to his side and sought out his wound. With kindly words, she asked him how he had met this evil chance. But she waited not for a reply, for it came into her thought that a little way back in the forest she had noted a plant of sovereign virtue to salve a bleeding wound, and very gently she told him she would bring help, and quickly she found the herb. As it chanced there came up riding a herdsman in search of a missing heifer, and him she bound to her service by a look and a word. Then she took up two stones and crushed out the juice of the healing plant, and anointed with it Medoro's bleeding hurt. And such was the virtue of the sap, that it stayed at once the flow of blood, and brought back some feeling of strength. 
Then Angelica entreated Medoro to mount the horse of the herdsman. But the youth would not leave his king until he had seen him buried by the side of his faithful Cloridan. When they had made an end of the burial, the peasant led them to the simple cottage he had built for his wife and children in the middle of a beautiful meadow, well watered by a still, clear stream. Here in the solitudes of wood and hill, and tended only by the peasant woman and her children, Angelica nursed back to life and strength the wounded youth. And in the blackness of his eyes, and in the gold of his hair, she found the likeness of her own, and she knew in her heart that here was the man designed to be her mate from the beginning of the world. She, who in vain had been sought in love by the mightiest of the age, now made a willing surrender to Medoro, a Saracen of lowly birth and unknown to fame. And in the sight of God and of the simple peasants, they pledged themselves for ever, and they were wedded with rites as solemn as if they had stood in a great temple. No doubt and no hesitation had Angelica. For a month and a day they lived and loved in the forest, and like two children cut their names on the trees and made garlands of the woodland flowers. And when the month was ended, they set out on the long journey to Cathay, there to seat Medoro on the throne of Gallifrone. Now Angelica, in her peasant dress, had nothing to give to the kindly herdsman but the one bracelet that had been left to her from the Island of Sorrows, and this was the bracelet that after a long history had fallen into the hands of Orlando, who in his turn had given it to Angelica. And little she thought of the giver as she lightly bestowed it on the herdsman. And as it chanced, or had been decreed from the beginning, Orlando in his wanderings in search of Angelica, after the dream in which he had been warned of her unknown peril, came to the cottage in the forest soon after the lovers had left, and he noted on the walls, writ in Arabic, the intertwining of the names of Angelica and Medoro, and at first he thought only that it was the work of some fugitive Saracen who had linked his own with a world-known name. But when he had questioned the herdsman and his wife, and they had extolled the beauty of Angelica, he began to be afraid. And the fear was turned into certainty when the peasant showed him with pride the beautiful bracelet. And when Orlando knew the bracelet, then indeed he knew that his love was lost. And most of all he grieved, or so he said to his heart, that the glory of Angelica should have been given up to a stripling of no name or fame. The night fell before the herdsman had finished telling to Orlando the wonderful story of the loves of Angelica and Medoro, and over and over again he kept repeating in his peasant tongue every detail, from the finding of the wounded youth down to the departure and the gift of the bracelet. And Orlando suffered him to wander on, though every word added a new pang to his grief. At length he retired to an inner room to sleep till daybreak, but in the stillness and blackness of the night he saw more plainly than when he had listened to the peasant every scene in the story. No longer could he doubt that Angelica had given herself for ever, body and soul, to this nameless pagan. Then the thought came into his mind, and grew stronger and fuller until every other thought was banished, that in this very room, 
and on this very couch the lovers had begun their wedded life. Suddenly, overpowered by jealous hatred and anger and despair and offended pride and a turmoil of passions, Orlando sprang from the couch and in the middle of the night sought out his arms and his steed, Brilliadoro, and rode into the depths of the forest. All night he wandered aimlessly amongst the great silent trees, but from every one he seemed to hear mocking voices. And at break of day, as was ordained for his punishment, he came to a grotto where, most of all, the happy lovers had been wont to hide themselves from the heat of the sun, far removed from any thought of Espiel. And on the trees he saw interlaced the names of the lovers, and on a slab of marble, smooth as a tablet, Medoro had written, with the charcoal from a wasted fire, verses in Arabic, telling the glory of his love and triumph. And the burden of the verses was that Angelica, who had been sought in love by all the great ones of the earth, had rejected all, and had given herself wholly and for ever to her nameless Medoro. Now when Orlando read the verses, and when he saw beneath them the name of Angelica, as if a witness to the truth, and well Orlando knew the character of her writing by old experience, his last restraint gave way, and sheer madness shattered his senses, and with his mighty sword, Durindana, he smote the tablet of stone and broke it into fragments, and the fragments he hacked into splinters. And beside the grotto was a lovely fountain of clear, sweet water, and on the margin were noble trees, and most of all on these trees had the lovers cut tokens for remembrance, like children in their sportive happiness. And with his famous unbreakable sword, Orlando hewed out the names and tokens, and he slaughtered the saplings round about as if he would make a desert of the place. And he hurled into the fountain rocks and mud, and broke up the grotto, and cast upon it great branches and earthy roots, and weighty stones. And as he wrought this habit, the madness seized him with greater fury, and he cast off his armour and tore from his limbs the plate and mail, and he flung far from him into the greenwood helmet and shield and sword. And then, as the frenzy waxed stronger and more outrageous, he rent his garments and tore them into shreds, until stark naked he rushed wildly through the forest and with hideous shouts of rage he tore up the great forest trees and broke off the giant branches. Of all the stories of madness, the madness of Orlando is the most horrible, steeped in blood and mire, unmeaning in ferocity, ruthlessly destructive of innocent lives, indiscriminate as a plague, and withal grotesque in every part from beginning to end. For in the beginning, Almighty God had sent Orlando as the scourge of the heathen and the champion of Christendom, and he had gifted him with superhuman strength and courage, and had made his body invulnerable. No weapon could pierce his skin, and no fatigue weary his limbs. Yet, for all his strength, he was made most gentle in courtesy, and least boastful of his prowess. Of his own deeds he spake not at all and he went about righting wrongs, and shedding all about the glory of chivalry, until he fell into his deadly sin. And his sin was to give himself up to the love of a pagan, 
and at her behest to use his might. And therefore God took vengeance on him, and of all his greatness left him only his brute strength and his invulnerability. In all else Orlando was made into a grotesque counterfeit of his former self, in mind and body. Not content with raging through the forest, he attacked with fury man and animal, and with his naked hands wasted every habitation he came near. He fought with wild beasts and tore them asunder, and ate of their raw flesh. Every living thing, human, plant or animal, he fell upon like a destroying fiend, and in vain the peasants came in their hundreds, armed with staves and scythes, to crush him to death. Them he crushed in their hundreds, hurling one against another. And as he wandered over the earth, his skin was blackened with sun and storm. His eyes were buried far down in the sockets. His face grew lean and dry as bone. Long and tangled was his beard, and in wild elf locks his hair hung down to his shoulders. At last the path of his destruction took the madman to the shore near Barcelona, and it came into his crazy mind that he would build him a shelter from sun and storm, and in the sand he scooped a pit and burrowed in it and lay covered except his head. Now, after Angelica and Medoro had left the herdsman's cottage, they wandered many days over the mountains between France and Spain, and came at last to the sea. And as they rode carelessly along the shore, suddenly Angelica saw rising out of the sand the horrible head of Orlando, and as soon as the madman saw her he rose up, with the sand running down his naked body and dripping from his tangled hair. And he rushed at Angelica, and trembling and shrieking she called to Medoro and sped away on her steed. And when Medoro saw her danger, he smote at the madman with his sword, but wounded him not at all. And Dorlando turned and with his fist struck dead the horse of Medoro with a crushing blow between the eyes, and again pursued Angelica. And in her terror she fell from her horse within three feet of the madman. But even as she fell, quick as thought she put in her mouth the ring, and the savage madman, seeing her not, chased her steed. And when he sprang from his den in the sand, Orlando knew not that it was Angelica on whom he rushed, and when he was within an arm's length and glaring into her face, still he knew her not. He knew her not from a tree or a rock or a wild beast that had aroused his unreasoning anger. And had he caught her, he would have torn her limb from limb never knowing it was the woman he had worshipped. But in his madness he pursued the affrighted mare along the sandy shore, and speedily seized it, and with a bound leaped on its back, and mile after mile he galloped in fury, never giving to the wretched beast a moment's rest. At last he rode headlong at a cleft in the rocks, and the mare fell and broke her shoulder. Thereupon the madman carried her on his back, until he was wearied. Then again he set her on the ground, and dragged her by the bridle, and forced her to stumble along. And then he thought to get better speed by noosing the reins round the leg, and in this fashion he hauled the beast after him, till it was dead. And long after, in the strength of his madness, 
he dragged the mangled body over rough rocks and through tangled brushwood. At last Orlando came to a deep river, and he swam across, but was forced to leave the dead mare behind. Just as he reached the other side, a shepherd came riding along the bank on a horse which he had brought to drink at the river, and seeing Orlando naked and alone, he had no fear. But the madman cried out to him, "'I want you to exchange your horse with my mare. I can show her to you from here, if you will. There she is lying on the other bank. The only fault with her is that she is dead, but you can easily cure her of that afterwards. For such a bargain you must give me something as well as your horse. Get down of your courtesy, for your animal pleases me.' The shepherd laughed at the folly of the fool and rode on towards the ford. "'Do you not hear?' Orlando roared after him. "'I want your horse!' The shepherd had a thick knotted staff, and with this he struck the naked madman. And the anger of Orlando passed all bounds, and with his fist he struck the shepherd on the head and smashed his skull so that he fell to the earth dead. Orlando leapt on the horse, and he never stopped to give it rest or food, and rode it to death, and when this horse was dead, he seized another. Through a large part of France and Spain, the invulnerable madman left behind him a wide track of villages wasted by fire and slaughter. At last he came to Malaga, and there he wrought worse destruction than ever before. He sacked the city so that for years afterwards it never recovered and all over the countryside he pulled down and burned the houses. Then he rowed along the shore until he came to Gibraltar, and there he saw a boat putting out to sea, with a goodly company of men and women, taking their pleasure in the calm water and the morning breezes. And the madman cried out to them, Stop! I want to come with you! And as fast as they could, with oar and sail, the people urged their boat away from the naked madman. Orlando forced his horse into the sea, and with cruel blows from a heavy staff, he made it swim after the boat. At last, the horse sank under him, and the madman swam on with no more thought of the boat that had gone far away. And fortune, that always looks after the mad, guided the mad Orlando across the straits until he landed in Africa. Then he set his face to the east, and wandered all along the northern coast of Africa, until after many days he came upon a great army of black Nubians encamped on the shore of the sea, before the city of Beserta. And Orlando had been brought to this spot, so that the judgment of God upon him for his sins might be ended with a wonderful act of mercy, as the story will show and Angelica never knew that the living horror which sprang up out of the sand to clutch her was all that was left on earth of him who had been Orlando. And without further mishap, Angelica and Medoro found a ship and sailed away to the east, and they are heard of no more in the verses of the divine Ariosto. End of chapter 6